Pastor Roland caught my ear earlier this week when we were talking about the message. He said the title was God's Design for Families or Discovering God's Design for Families. And that word design uh, got me uh, on a tangent, which I, if you've ever hung out with me, uh, tend to do. Uh, I'm fascinated by design. Uh, I'm not a student of it. I'm more of a, an, an enthusiast. And um, I started talking about it with Roland, and he said, well, that's kind of interesting. Why don't you write that down, and you can kind of start the message with that. So this is kind of a priming of the pump, if you will, just thinking about what is design, right? So I have uh, titled this brief presentation, A Few Thoughts on Design. I think that's very succinct and to the point. Let's look get into it. Design is a word that is both a noun and a verb. I looked it up. There's 15 different definitions to fully encompass what is design. I kind of summed it up with uh, the idea that it is a skillful, and willful creation. Skillful meaning it's not art, it's not whatever goes. It's, there's some physics involved. You have to have some understanding, some knowledge, um, some skill, how to actually design something that's functional and that it works. Let's move on to the next slide. This is, under, this is a really important to understand. Design fundamentally impacts how we understand the world. Okay, now here's just one good example. Look at this picture, this fine young outstanding man right here. Uh, that is Mr. Thomas Edison sitting with his very first phonograph. Uh, about the 1870s he invented that. Now it's important to keep in mind, well, what, is, what does that matter? Before Thomas Edison designed a phonograph, no human being had ever heard their voice recorded back to them, right? Played back. Uh, Mozart never heard any of his symphonies played back. Uh, these thing about these famous people that lived and died never heard the sound of their own voice. Design impacts how we understand the world. Look at it as it evolves. The phonograph becomes the record player, becomes the CD player. That's the very first CD player by Philips in the early 80s to the famous uh, iPod, which now looks arcane even though it's 10 years old. The idea that we could go from never hearing our voice back to carrying days worth of music in our pocket. How many of you have an MP3 player in your pocket right now on your phone or elsewhere? Look around. That should be more of you. We'll work on that. Um, <laughs> design fundamentally impacts how we understand the world. Let's move on to another idea. A beautiful functional design stands the test of time even as the form evolves. I'm a little bit of a car nerd. If I could spend lots and lots of money on cars, I would. I cannot, so I don't. Um, that is an original 1960 Porsche 911. It's one of the first iterations of that now classic shape. Check out the oval headlights, the sloped back, the engines in the rear. That is the famous Mercedes 300 SL Gullwing from the 1960s. Beautiful functional design stands the test of time. There is a brand new 2013 Porsche 911. See how it has the same oval headlights, the same slope. The engine is still in the back. That's the $200,000 Mercedes SLS AMG. Rumor has it Justin Bieber has one, so just chew on that. Um, the same gullwing doors. Look at the grill. Let's go back up one slide so you can see. Look at the similarities. You know why? It's a good design. It's appealing to the eye. It stands the test of time. They've been evolving. They have not been reinventing. All right, let's move on. Bad design, however, is quickly rejected and fades from memory. <laughs> Anybody, anybody want an Edsel or a Chevette over a 911 or a SL Gullwing? Anybody? Going once. Oh, we have no takers. That is shocking. Bad design reveals itself quickly, friends. It may survive for a moment, but it fades. Moving on. Good design can be iconic. It instantly transports us to a place. Uh, we know what we're going to do. That is, of course, the... Sydney, I was going to go for the DMV in Sherman Oaks, but apparently it is the Sydney Opera House. That is correct. Uh, let's look at the next slide. That is, of course, the... That's in Las Vegas. Yes, that's correct. <laughs> However, poor design can be disastrous. That is not the ride at Universal City. That's a real photograph actually taken from a video from 1940. That is the Tacoma Narrows Bridge, which had a design flaw so that when the wind started whipping through that canyon, the bridge starts oscillating. There's a fascinating video from 1940. And let's see, oh, we have an epic fail from the 40s. That bridge collapsed. It's a very famous thing. You can look it up, the Tacoma Narrows Bridge. Good design stands the test of time. Bad design collapses. It falls apart on itself. This proves itself again and again. All right. Now, this is one more idea. Sometimes it takes some time to understand how a design should work. Uh, this gentleman did not go down in history as the first aviator, unfortunately. He tried very hard. Uh, that is looking like very good until you realize that it's an illustration and not actually doing anything. This gentleman is no longer with us. Um, <laughs> 
Moving on, I like to call that the flying radiator. Uh, moving on, uh, uh-oh, wait a minute here. Now that looks familiar. That is the Kitty Hawk, made famous by Orville and Wilbur Wright. That is the first legitimate airplane. It flew in North Carolina for about a mile and a half or so. I want you to check out this quote. I found this last night. This is the curator of the National Kitty Hawk Museum in New, uh, New North Carolina who said this. Before the Wright brothers, no one in aviation did anything fundamentally right. Since the Wright brothers, no one has done anything fundamentally different. So it took a while for these guys to figure out what's a design that functions. And since then, let's look forward through time. We see a biplane from World War I. We see a P-51 from World War II. An F-86 from the Korean era. Moving forward, that's the Tom Cruise, the danger zone. That's from my childhood. Speaks into me, F-14. Moving forward to present day, that's the current best that humanity has in terms of flight. That's the F-35 Joint Strike Fighter. Same basic principle that Orville and Wilbur discovered. Flight requires lift, requires wings, requires thrust. We have been building on a fundamentally good idea for 100 years. Good design stands the test of time. Bad design lands you in the drink. End of story. Design matters. It's really important. Couple of key ideas. Design fundamentally impacts how we view and interact with the world. Good design remains good design, standing the test of time. Poor design leads to disaster, but mistakes can help lead to the discovery of the design that works. With that in mind, I'm a family guy. I've got young kids. I am interested in God's design, God's intent for my family, for our families. Pastor Roland, would you come and share with us from the scripture and from your heart about that? Would you give it up for Pastor Roland this morning? Well, uh, thanks, Chad. After first service, someone said, you know, Chad was really good today, Roland. He said, he said uh, you were okay, but he said, Chad was good. And I said, really? He said, yeah. He said, I love cars. So, you know, we'll just bring them in here. But, hey, great job and very in, uh, informational, instructional as well. Well, good morning. And uh, I'm actually excited to learn what God's design for the family is also over these next few weeks. Uh, someone else came up afterward and said, you know, thanks for talking about grandparents. And we're going to talk about everybody over these next four weeks, whether you're single, whether you're married, whether you're thinking about getting married, whether you're a grandparent. By the way, not only does life begin at 60, but life takes off even further when you're a grandparent. So that's, uh, there you go. Welcome to the grandparenting club. So when we say design, as Chad did a very excellent job of pointing out cars, trucks, planes, uh, but also we think of clothing and houses and computers. And uh, if I were to say, does design matter in those areas? Well, what do we mean by that? Suppose you came home and your four or five-year-old son was uh, playing wiffle ball with your laptop. Uh, does design matter at that moment? Or uh, that same four or five-year-old, usually it's a little boy, decides to clean a goldfish bowl with the vacuum cleaner. You know, the <laughs> suck it right out. Now, the reason those things I've thought about is that we have, I had sons, and they do those kinds of things. And if you notice, too, how little boys are more creative than little girls when it comes to those kinds of, of experimentation. Little boys love to experiment with things, you know. And uh, so they will, they will think of very creative things. We were in Atlanta a couple weeks ago, and uh, we have the two of the grandkids are there. Uh, little Connor, who's two, and he loves trains and things, and, and Ellie has just turned five. <laughs> and uh, for what parents were gone one day, and so... Uh, uh, Graham and I were, uh, we turned on Curious George, you know, Man with the Yellow Hat. You know, every Curious George episode is a disaster. You know, he's using something for what it was not designed for. Like one day he got creative and he, he flooded a whole apartment complex by opening a valve, you know, with a tool and those kinds of things. But those are kind of like little boys and, and curious monkeys uh, happen to uh, take things and use them other than what they were designed for. And uh, that is something we probably all have done without knowing it. By the way, what are garage sales designed for? <laughs> Getting rid of stuff, absolutely. And we had our first in uh, the last the 400 years, and probably our last one we're going to have. We had one yesterday. People come out early in the morning for those things. It's, it's crazy. But, uh, so we got rid of a bunch of stuff. Now, if we look at the family and how God designed that, here's what we'd have to say as a summary of our world condition. Uh, we're in trouble right here in River City and all around the world. The family's in trouble. Uh, not new. Uh, it's not new to this particular age. It's been that way for a, a very long time. And um, 
So we want to see today, and people ask me from time to time, like, like we're experts or something, and we're not. Why is that so? I had a guy the other morning in one of the small groups, men's group. He said, uh, well, what is it? Is it finances? And I said, well, finances is a contribution. But we could talk about many, many areas of pain and challenge in families, but it all comes back to one thing. It comes back to ignoring the original design. Do we pay attention to it? And we can be sure it's greatly ignored in our culture, and then sometimes we wonder what happened. Are there any designers, any architects, any computer designers, uh, anybody here this morning? Could I see your hands? There are some. There you go. Look at that. We had a bunch of the first service who wouldn't raise their hand. Uh, any, any medical people, any doctors in here? Uh, yeah, when you think of how things are designed and how important it is, you get paid as a designer to make sure it works and it operates well. Um, also, um, medical people will tell you the body is designed to do certain things and it's not designed to do other things. They've also told us that what we put into the body by way of what we eat has some impact on us. And uh, usually they tell you if anything feels, uh, tastes good, spit it out, right? You know, I mean, junk food tastes great, that's why we eat it. But, you know, eventually it will probably kill you. Uh, but it tastes good going down. Now, this morning we want to look at uh, some questions that will impact these next four weeks. And the first one is this. Why in the scriptures in the New Testament is family the design for leadership in the local church? Men and women. Why is it, why is the family part of the testing ground, I should say, the proving ground for leaders? Well, it is. God says so because our real character is revealed at home. It's revealed at home. And God says, if we're not able to make it work at home, don't transport it to the church. Now, that does not mean that God is looking for perfection because no one would be qualified at that point, right? But it means someone who is taking their signals from God, attempting to follow him in these areas of relationships, of family or any other kind of relationship, and leaving the results up to him. That's part of God's plan, part of his design. Second question is, why is Jesus the model for families? Have you noticed that in Scripture? The model for families is Christ himself. And yet Jesus was what? He was single. So what is it in his life that makes him the model for all of us in all relationships, whether we're married, single, grandparent, uh, stepfamily, it doesn't matter. Why is he the model? Well, because he's God. That helps, right? And all the qualities and all the characteristics that are needed in the home, he possesses. And he models for us. We'll see that as we go through this series as well. Now, a third question is this one. What do we do when the culture and the culture's ways, the culture's uh, ways of doing family, marriage, and relationships contradict the scriptures? Who do we follow? Do we follow the culture? Are we supposed to follow the, the scripture? What do you think? How many vote for the culture? Okay, no takers. Didn't have many in the last service either. How many think we should follow the scriptures? Now, as we travel around the world, we've discovered all believers around the world will say, we need to follow the scriptures. But guess what? All of us are overly influenced by the culture. I shared with you before that if you're in Africa, about th we estimate 30 to 35% of all pastors are unfaithful to their wives in Africa. That's not a good thing. Some say, well, they don't know any better. They absolutely know better. Part of the culture. We also shared with you when we were in northern India where there's these tens of thousands of young Hindu converts and thousands of these young Hindu first-generation pastors. Most of them beat their wives. They say they love their wives because guess what their fathers did to their mother. That's what they've grown up with. Now, the good news is we don't have any cultural contradictions like that here in America, do we? We don't have any of that. I mean, that's what you have over there. We don't have any of those where our culture contradicts the scripture or in churches, do we? Of course we know we do. Uh, of course we, we see it. We've, we battle with it in our own lives. Um, scripture says husbands are to love their wives the same way Christ loved the church. And he loved her sacrificially. That means the average man always puts his wife first in all things. Right, guys? We always do that. And that also means that wives treat their husbands like Jesus would. They never manipulate anything to get what they want, right? And I hope you know I'm teasing by now. But you see, I've shared this with you before as well, but I think it's worth repeating. 48% of all pastors in North America admit they struggle with pornography. Those are the ones who admit it. 
And then there's something else going on in our culture that's, you know, let's say, hey, let's not make a big deal out of it, I've heard people say. People are texting, going on Facebook with old boyfriends and girlfriends back in high school and college. They're married, they have kids, they may even be grandparents. Hey, I just want to find out how it's going on. And they don't see any potential problem with that. My suggestion is if you do that, also copy your own mate with everything you send them. Copy their mate. Copy your kids and your grandkids. And also a pastor or elders or someone at your church. And then it's okay, all right? And every one you do, and every contact you make, just do that. Folks, we kid ourselves. We say things are harmless. And on top of that, our media totally advertises that which doesn't work. When you think of uh, Hollywood, and uh, we're all aware of that, you know, we're, we're, you know we have, uh, you know, marriages last at least two to three weeks before they find someone new. And, uh, you know, you'll see someone, you know, an actor, actress kissing, you know, saying, well, that's just, a, that's just a, a theatrical Hollywood kiss. Yeah, but they're not married to that person. How many of us think, well, let's just go do some Hollywood kissing around, you know, let's go kiss people or her husband or wife, is that going to work? How many would vote for that? And people see no correlation in why those are basically Velcro marriages. You know, pull one out, stick another one in. Our whole culture speaks against the wisdom and design of what God says for maximum thriving relationships. So we're going to be investigating some of that over the weeks and uh, as we begin today on this, um, this, this journey. On top of that, if that weren't enough, how about raising children? Any challenges in that? <laughs> I think so. We'll talk a little bit about raising kids uh, without raising your blood pressure. And uh, let me ask you this. Is to raising kids today easier in your home or in a pastor's home? What do you think? Hmm? I would doubt it's easier in your home than in a pastor's home. Because those kids are continually in the spotlight, aren't they? Could be, but either way, it's a challenge no matter how we raise them. And it's interesting because we all have good intentions. Everybody gets married or starts a family with good intentions. No one says, you know, I'm married. I think first thing I'm going to do is get a divorce. You know, or let's raise some kids who are just out of control. <laughs> now, that, wouldn't that be fun? You know, like Adam and Eve, they went home and, you know, after they got kicked out of the garden and they raised Cain. So, you know how that works. Wouldn't that be fun just to do that? No, we don't think that way. We don't think that way. And so the next four weeks, we're going to discover God's design for thriving families more than, and I do know this, on some days, it's a victory if you just survived the day or the week, right? There are days for survival. But God's design is that we not go through surviving, but he says we move toward thriving if we'll listen to him, if we'll listen to his design for our lives and for our families. Uh, just want you to know, Patricia and I raised flawless, perfect families as we... People, they don't believe us, honey. Well, you're right. I don't believe me either in that one. So let's ask you a couple more questions here. First one, the first question is this. Why did you get married? Why did you get married? What did you hope would happen? Now, what's the biggest unspoken reason why people get married? People wouldn't say it out loud, but some do. You know what, they, what you hear? I just want to be happy, right? I want someone who can make me happy. Now, folks, that's a lot like... Uh, putting all your hopes on your favorite sports team or on the stock market, right? If you're looking for someone to make you happy, it's the first step to guaranteed misery. And yet it happens over and over again. Young people get me, oh, he's so fine. I just, he, he makes me feel so good. Well, that's nice, but you know, it isn't going to last very long, okay? Now, we know why most men got married. It was a glandular decision. That's all I need to say. Women will get married because they want someone to take care of them. They're looking for security, whatever on earth that means, whatever security is. They want, we want someone to understand us. Women say, well, you know, I, I, he hangs on to every word I say. He listens to me. And that's wonderful. And men should do that. Then they get married. They say, what happened? He's not listening the way he used to. By the way, ladies, do you know why an archaeologist is the best person you could ever marry? Do you know why? Because the older you get, the more interested he gets in you. You liked it, you'll probably tell somebody too, won't you? <laughs> well, 
when we think of uh, men and women, the distinctions and the differences, ladies, let me give you one more reason that you may not know about a man when he gets married or he hopes will happen if he never articulates it. And we'll look at what women also do not articulate but also hope will happen. Daniel Levinson wrote a book called The Seasons of a Man's Life, and he says this, the typical man marries a woman who he thinks will nourish his life vision and help him fulfill his life's work. He found that if a wife fails to or loses interest in what her husband does, the relationship will become troubled. It's just a matter of time. That's why it's important to pay attention to each other. Michelangelo said, I only feel well when I have a chisel in my hand. What is he talking about? He's saying that a man's work often defines his value. God says, I got a better definition. But let's face it, as men, often what we do shapes our, how we look at ourselves. And ladies, in a transition, it's especially crucial that we pay attention when a husband loses a job or he's going to a new place. Particularly listen during that time. Because his life is wrapped up in that whole thing. And uh, some of you men could speak well to that. Now, a woman wants to be prized. She wants to be understood. She wants to be listened to. She wants to be encouraged to become all that God designed her to be and much more. A wise man will pay attention to those particular needs as well. And we're looking the weeks ahead now at God's original design and What's happened since then? So turn with me, if you would, to your Bible, to the very first chapter of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1. And that's where baseball is first mentioned, right? Okay. I'm going to read a few verses, verses 26, beginning in verse 26. Then God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, and all the wild animals on the earth. So God created them. God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. Verse 31, Then God looked over all he had made, and he saw it was very good. So as we look at this passage, we're going to find some keys as to why God made the family. And the first one was, he made the family, he made designed it to experience his love. You say, well, wait a minute, I didn't see that in there. Where does it say to experience his love? Well, he said, let's make mankind in our image. And in the Godhead, we have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, who experiences perfect, eternal, infinite, pure love at all times. Do you realize God has never had a bad day in his life in all of eternity with himself? God's never had a bad day with himself ever. He never will. That's why he's God and we're not. And he says, I want my creation to experience the love that Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit have. That was his design. When he's calling, he says, I want to make them in our image. We want them to experience that kind of love. And so the question, is that possible in marriage? Is that possible in the family? Well, why would God say that if it wasn't possible? When we think of love, scriptures tell us perfect, complete love casts out all fear. Wouldn't it be nice to know that kind of love? There was no fear in the world among relationships. What would have happened? What would this world be like? Well, it would be heaven. We would be there already. Years ago, my mentor taught me there's many synonyms for love. We've given you a definition saying love is seeking and doing God's best for the other person. Then the feelings follow. But love has synonyms. Love is accepting the other person. Not necessarily what they do, but accepting them. It involves approving or approval. It involves affection and admiration. And finally, it leads to adoration, the five A's. You can remember that. That's God's kind of love. That's what happens when his love is unleashed in our lives. That begins to take hold in the spirit and the soul of a person. Now, that's exactly what our culture promotes, right? I don't think so. I don't think you're going to find that out there. Why does culture, when they do, uh, what is the culture's definition of love? I love you because you do something for me. You make me feel good. You know, we have words in our culture, talks, people talk about their trophy wives. 
Yeah, give her 10 or 15 years and maybe he'll be looking for some other kind of eye candy that comes by, right? If it's for what you do for me, it's already in trouble. It's already on a limited basis if that's what love is all about to us. And the culture says, okay, you can have my love, but you're going to have to perform for it. You'll have to earn it. You'll have to deserve it. And if you don't, I might remove it. Now, no one openly says that, but all you have to do is look, and that's what the culture believes. That's what it teaches. That's why we hop from one relationship to another. You didn't make me happy. You didn't do what I hoped you would do. And that's why God's love is so radical. He is the source of love, and his love is future grace, sacrificially, that makes me his. I don't make him mine. He makes me his. He initiates the whole thing. And he makes it operate and work based upon who he is. That's a different kind of love, folks. It's a different kind. That means there's no abandonment. That means his love doesn't quit when we quit or we complain or we walk away. His love keeps on. Human love doesn't. Now that's it. You're done. It's so different. And the truth is simply this. We are all looking for love. Everybody. Oh, people say, well, he's macho. I don't care what anybody thinks of me. Are you kidding me? They're so wounded, they're so hurt, they've given up on the idea they can be loved for who they are. Don't be faked out by macho love. It's, it's a bunch of little boys and bigger bodies who are hurt, and they just don't want to be hurt again. That's what that's about. The irony is this. The only pure love in the universe is often the one we mistrust or won't trust. God's. <laughs> the only one love that's never will fail, that won't let us down, that won't disappoint us, that won't walk away, we don't trust it. We say, I, you know, I, I better do it my way. I, I, I don't know if I can trust anyone. Now, why don't we trust God? There are many reasons, but there's a couple of them. One, we don't really trust ourselves. We, because we know we're flawed. We know what we'll do. Without knowing it, we project ourselves on God. We do that all the time. And secondly, we've been hurt by other people, so who wants to go out and get hurt by who we think might hurt us? And yet he's the one who loves us as nobody else. So what happens is that we not only don't trust him, we don't trust his design that works. Instead, we revert to our own ways, which in North America is 70% guarantee it will fail. Because that's how many marriages in in North America. If you get married, 70% will fail. So he says, that's not true. I heard it was 60. Well, it is 60, but the other 10% move in and don't, bo don't bother to get married, so they don't count in the statistics. It's the same thing. So 70% is failure. We talked about this. How many we get on an airplane, free ride to Hawaii, to Maui this afternoon? Forgot to tell you, it's a 70% chance it'll crash. Not many of us would take that option. And yet every day, people move into relationships and wonder what happened. And yet God says there's a greater love that never disappoints, that never fails, or we have it our own way, our own loves, our own idols that will guaranteed let us down Sometime and somewhere. Guaranteed to, if we do it our way, instead of according to the original design. So, do I receive? Do I enter into his love, into his design? Why? So I also have some favor, grace, and love to pass on to others. So the first reason is the experience is love. The second one, we've already said it, is to reflect his image. To reflect the image of God. Now, what is the image of God? It's not physical. You don't look like God, okay? Because God is spirit. <laughs> and I know Jesus became a man, but that's not what he's talking about. We've, we've mentioned this before. What do we have that is like God? Does God have a mind? Yes. Where did we get ours? From him. Does God have a will? Yes. God has an intellect. He has a will. Does God have emotion? Of course he does. Does God have a spirit? He is spirit. That's how we're made in his image. And it's also interesting in this passage, it says he made them male and female to reflect his image. You know what that means? Without a male-female counterpart, we don't have the full image of God. Remember we said, what would the world look like if it had been just designed by men only? Yeah, it looked like an army barracks, right? <laughs> Women had so much more. You know, they bring the color into life and, and many, many other things. But isn't it also true that in history, women are the ones who have not fared well in marriage or in cohabitation, because men have abused their roles or have misunderstood or ignored the design. I read an article the other day on cohabitation. A couple said, well, I'm not going to mess with marriage. We're just going to move in together, see if we should, you know, work it out. And before we, we're going to test drive it before we, you know, buy the thing. Well, the problem with that is guess who most, all the tests and scientific studies show that who suffers the most in those? Women. 
They carry the relationship. They even have to support it often financially more than the man. They do more than their share. And the guy's the first one to walk away. So that's a great solution, isn't it? God knows what he's talking about when he's designed it. And we have shared with you as we've traveled the world the plight of women in every culture, in Africa, Asia, South America. It, is, it just breaks your heart to see. And, and these are the wives of pastors. And, and, and that how their, their lives are a little bit higher than an animal, but not much. And they've suffered so much until we're going to see in a moment something else happens because when we reflect his image, then we discover the true source of our identity, our value, and our dignity. And when women begin to learn, they're made in the image of God and Jesus has given them their value and their dignity and the honor that he designed for them, their whole life changes. And that they have equal value to men. That's shocking. No, no, they say, that's not true. What does that mean? He made you. We have different roles, but you have equal value. You're not more important. You're not less important. He's not more important. He's not less important. We have equal value to God. And it's the dignity that comes because he made us. And we have value and honor, and we can each other because of we're God's unique creation. I read this yesterday. Did you know that we all are alike in our DNA? We are alike in DNA in 99.6% of our DNA. Did you know that? All humans are. Did you know it's only the 0.4% of the difference in DNA that gives us all the variety in the world? Turn to the person next to you and say, you don't look like me. Okay? Yeah, you don't. And what about the different cultures, the different languages, the different races, all the differences there are? 0.4% of the DNA. That's the only place we vary. But when we get to heaven, I think God's going to unlock the other 99.6, don't you? Heaven is going to blow our categories beyond, we can't imagine, is what the scripture says. It's going to be far more creative and wonderful than we could ever manage on this old planet. If not, if we don't get our dignity, our value, and our identity from Christ, guess what? We're going to try to find it in somebody else's approval, some accomplishments, our looks, or our possessions, and it's a dead-end street. Because no matter how much you have of that, it's not going to fulfill the void on the inside. And so the question is this, do we refuse his value, and do we perform for others? Now, it's true that our work, we go to work, our work demands performance. If you don't perform at work, what's it called? You need a new job, right? But our, our value, our identity, and our dignity doesn't depend on our performance. It's already given. I can't improve it. He already gave it to me. That's favor grace. But as I yield to his leadership and I follow daily, I experience the joy of reflecting his image. So he made me what? To experience his love. Number two, to reflect his image. And then number three, which you probably already knew, to partner in companionship, lasting companionship. Why? To manage his creation. Who does God value? We just said it. Who does he value? All people. Including the people we walk by, the people we ignore, and the people we don't like. Other races, other cultures. You know what? Hey, they're just one of those. He says, I value them. I made them. That impacts how we relate to each other and all people. Patricia and I were talking yesterday just as God's taken us around the world and broken our hearts with some of the dearest people on earth. And what we, we've confessed, oh, God, forgive me. Some of are some of the brightest, sharpest, quickest people on earth. And they can't read or write, but they get it much quicker than an American audience. You say it once, they got it. They remember it. They use it. And God's given them so much. We may not recognize it, but he has. Thirdly, it's a partner in lasting companionship. Why? To manage his creation. Now, look at verse chapter 2 and verse 18. It says this. Then the Lord said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper who is just right for him. Then jump down to verse 24. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. Now, the word helper, some of you know this is an interesting word. It means completer. One who fills up the missing parts in the other. God made us to be a complement to one another. Too bad it doesn't happen automatically. We are designed to complement each other in cooperation that nurtures and releases 
each person's full God-given potential. That's what a marriage relationship is designed to do. As we said before, what's a helper for what? Is she there to help him train, change the oil on his Harley? I mean, what, what is God talking about? She's a helper. Well, it's the idea. Adam was given the job of managing all of creation. He said, subdue the earth and fill it. Sound like a big job to anybody? He was given the job of naming animals. He didn't go around saying, you know, kitty and little pig. And, no, he had to study their characteristics. That's the greatest genius who ever lived other than, genius, uh, than Jesus was who? Adam, before the fall, and Eve. They were, they were in, their intellects were not marred. They were geniuses. And so God gave them meaningful, God-given work. And this doesn't mean sing, single people cannot have a meaningful life, okay? In fact, it seems to me Jesus was single and Paul was. And yet they've instructed all of us for thousands of years on how to live life. And even tell us that even a single, there is a God-designed blueprint for developing relationships, you may have to wait a little longer than some people do before you get married, but guess what? Or you may not get married at all. But God is preparing you to be a blessing to others in that waiting period. And God has defined what singleness looks like as well. Then notice it said, leave and cleave in verse 25. Now, we don't use those words much in this culture, but leave and join. It says what? We become maturing individuals who can achieve deep, lasting relationships. And it means we live, leave childhood behind and move into a maturing life that can care for other people. That's what he's talking about. In fact, when you think of it here, it says that we leave childhood to accept responsibility. It also means that parents must release control of their children to start their own new family. You and I have all seen painful, disastrous situations of parents trying to control their kids after they get married. And sometimes they do it with money. And sometimes, in fact, I have a friend whose wife said to him one day, and their relationship isn't very good, as you probably would have guessed. He says, you know, um, I withhold affection from the kids, their adult kids, until they come around and do what I want. He says, yeah, that's the only way I can control them. Excuse me, where does the design say your goal is to control your adult kids? I don't think so. It's to release them, to launch them to the life God's called for them. And so we've all seen that kind of thing. This does not necessarily mean that leaving the house and starting your own house means you left home. You may be, you know, there's plenty of people who have their umbilical cords still plugged back into their original house. They haven't cut those. It doesn't mean we, the Bible says you're to honor mother and father. But you know what? We have a new relationship, a marriage. That's where we focus our time and attention. Sometimes you even have to tell mom or dad, you know what? It's very hard. We need you to back off a little. Let us catch our breath. We need to start our own home. And that can come, depending, I won't go in there now, we might talk about weeks ahead. It can be a hard thing, but you know what? You're better to do it earlier than to try to do it later and to deal with it at that point. God's design is that parents prepare, bless, and release their kids to fulfill their God-given destiny. And, you know, we didn't raise our kids perfectly, but I had a goal. And I said, you know, sometimes they even ask, Dad, what do you want me to be? I said, I want you to be exactly what God designed you to be. Did I have any prior preconceived ideas? Of course I did. But I prayed God keep me from foisting it on them to see what you're going to do in their life. I did it pretty well. I did it imperfectly. But I knew at least what God wanted to be done there. And then the fourth thing, why did God, God make us and why did he design the family back in verse 28 to raise a God-focused next generation. Verse 28 says, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. What's he talking about? The next generation. Parents, we often have goals for our kids. We want them to get a good education, you know, and then get a good job, marry the right person, have grandkids, buy a nice house, fund our retirement. No, not that part. And, and, and God says, is that all? You know, there's some parents think because their kids are doing well, they're outside, that, that God says, that's enough. No, it's not. There's more to it. And we're going to see it in just a moment. God said there's much more than that. And it's that God designed our kids to love and represent Him. Just like that's our life goal, to represent Him. And when we talk about kids, we're going to talk about the three R's of raising kids. And then what they are, their relationship or love, responsibility, I have to learn that early on, and respect, how to respect parents. The three R's. You know, I see parents all the time, especially with little ones, you know, they're raising a little, their own little two-year-old terrorist, little Osama, 
runs around the house, and he holds parents captives. What am I going to do? What am I going to do? I said, well, you know what? He is two. You are 32. You're six, five, or you're, you know, five, six as a mom. And guess what? You can handle him. And you know what, parents? It's all about how do we help our kids become what God designed them to be. A few years ago, we were back east. My oldest son and his wife, they only had one child at the time, little Annika. We were down by the Delaware River eating uh, at this nice little restaurant, having a great time. And, and Annika was acting up. I mean, she was being a little beast. And uh, finally, Matt looked over and he says, Now, Annika, you stop that. Or, and she said, Or what, Dad? <laughs> and already you could see she was negotiating what could happen here. She wanted to know what her options were. Should she really obey or not? And we're all kind of biting our thumb, like they're trying not to laugh. <laughs> and Matt looks at me and says, Dad, what do you do when your three-year-old can outthink you? And I said, you're right. Son. Isn't it interesting? Kids are smarter than their parents. You know why? Because your kids study you. They know exactly where your boiling point is and when you're going to hit the, you know, the hamburger hits the fan. They know all that. They've studied you, watched you. Remember the old Dennis the Menace cartoon? It was in the paper. and He's playing with Tommy. And, and Tommy says, Dennis, you got to go home. Your mom's just yelled for the third time. He says, I'm okay, Tommy. It's when she hits number seven, I got to move. <laughs> kids are smart. And parents, we're going to talk about how to take the asylum back before, we're, before we move on through this series. What do we do? Um, I would just say to parents, you do not need to beg, threaten uh, bodily damage to your kids to get them to obey. We'll talk about that. And then number five, God says in verse 28 the same thing. He says, be fruitful, multiply. Fill the earth and govern it. Rain over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and birds of the air, and, and little animals that scurry along the ground. What's he saying? He says, extend his blessings to the whole earth. We were designed by God before the fall to, to bless the whole earth. That's part of God's plan. Do we have a global perspective? Do our kids have one? And he said, Adam, I want you to manage my, all of my creation. We said that's a pretty big job. By the way, this is a passage. It's a command for science. That's a whole other message. I don't have time for it today. It says families need a perspective that goes beyond our immediate family focus to a global perspective. Every family is to have a global perspective. That's how God designed it. It wasn't just us four and no more. Unfortunately, I see too many Christian families who are kind of huddled tightly just with them. And God never designed it that way. Now, I have a bucket list Probably not like most people. Um, we've seen all the world we need to see a couple times or more. Uh, I've had been privileged to have many experiences. But there's, there's really one left on my bucket list. You know what it is? It's to take our kids who haven't been and grandkids to the mission field and to see and experience what God made in this world. I want them to know what it's like. I want them to meet some of those people who have nothing, but they have ten times the joy that we have. I want them to meet some of these young church planners and he'll say, I'll die for Jesus. They hear about him. I want them to meet him. That's part of what's on my heart for them. So let's review the five real quickly. God's design for the family is number one, experience his love. Number two, reflect his image. Number three, partner in a lasting companionship to manage his creation. Number four, to raise a God-focused next generation. And number five, to extend his blessings to the whole world, whole earth. Question, how many of us got married for those five reasons? <laughs> One? <laughs> I haven't met anybody in any audience who got married for those reasons. Yeah, it's pretty clear. God said this is what it's about from the very beginning. So where to get lost? What happened? Well, we know what happened. The train wreck, right? God said, put, he put man and his wife in the garden and says, eat whatever you want, but not that one. And the tempter came along and said, why not that one? You know, what's God holding back? You know, God's not, he not, you know, he doesn't have your best in mind. You should try it. God said, go ahead. And you know what? There was a crash and burn. And it damaged your soul and mine and every human who's ever lived. It has marred relationships. And we have death and pain and suffering in this world. Because mankind said, I did it my way. 
Frank just waited a couple thousand years to sing about it. The result is what we see in our world today. Romans chapter 5 tells us what happened. It says, when Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death. So death spread to everyone for everyone sinned. You know what I think that verse is saying? If we had been there, we would have done exactly the same thing. We have the same nature as Adam. He just went first. So his, book, his name is recorded forever. Fortunately, there was a second Adam who came named Jesus who turned it around. But it also tells us this, that we're all capable of deceit, of cheating, of abuse, of wounds, all the things. You say, oh, never me, never my sweet grandma. We're all capable, folks, because of the fall. And it says this, the family is vulnerable today as we ignore God's design, we experience four things very quickly. Number one, we experience pain. The pain in the form of guilt, shame, blame, and estrangement from God and each other. So we blame each other. And why? Because we can do whatever we want, but we can't choose the what? The consequences. Tell your kids that over and over. You can choose anything you want one day, but you can't choose the consequences. You go with that crowd, you can go, but you can't choose the consequences. You choose God, you get far more than you ever imagined. And the family's vulnerable. And God has fresh ways for us to move from our own choices into his. Notice this verse. This is incredible. Jeremiah 2.13 says, For my people have done two evil things. Now notice the evil. They have abandoned me. The fountain, the source of living water. And they have dug for themselves cracked cisterns that can hold no water at all. That's what he said. Our culture says, I'm going to do it my way, and look at it. It just, the life drains right out of it. We see it, every front page, there's some politician, some athlete, some actor, actress, some, some high-profile person who blows the blueprint again. We say, what happened? Well, it's very easy. We ignored what God said. That's true of any of us, if we ignore that long enough. It always catches up the idea of a cistern that won't hold water. Our ways just won't hold it. And so the life-nourishing water drains right out. God says there's a better way. There's a second one that happens. Self-centered competition that replaces cooperation. You notice that? God designed us to cooperate with each other. Now, let's read this passage from uh, James chapter 4 together. Would you join me, please? What is causing the quarrels and fights among you? Don't they come from the evil desires of war within you? You want what you don't have, so you scheme and kill to get it. You're jealous of what others have, but you can't get it, so you fight and wage war to take it away from them. Yet you don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. And even when you ask, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. You only want what will give you pleasure. Does that kind of define the American dream? I think it does. And why God says, I have a better way. God has a better way. And all that leads to some twisted, um, eight twists. You know what happens when we have chosen our own way? Control replaces empowerment. Parents try to over-control. Mates over, instead of empowering another person to God's purposes. Demand replaces request. Husbands demand their wives do certain things. Wives demand of their kids and their husbands. And what happens? It kills love. A demanding spirit will kill love. Then what happens? Lust distorts love. Most people, when they say, I'm in love, if you're young enough, it usually means I'm in lust. And our culture is a lustful culture, folks. We all fight that. Fear and anger then replaces prayer. I don't get what I want. I don't pray about it. I just get ticked off and I, you know, blow up. Judging replaces understanding. We are so quick to judge someone else, not like us, it doesn't see things the way we do, and we don't like them. <laughs> sign them over, sign sealed, and delivered as guilty. Resentment and revenge replace or displace forgiveness. God said it could have been repaired. There's a new TV program I saw it the other night called Revenge. Anybody see that? Yeah, it was advertised Revenge. I don't know what it is. I was watching ESPN and they advertised Revenge. So it sounded like a great series for the family. 
And then performance for acceptance and approval replace grace. You got to perform. You got to dance. Pride then puts itself first and removes the humility of servant leadership. And we could go on and on. The third pain, the third problem that comes along is that the third result is an orphan mentality of abandonment and independence is what we experience. We've talked in the past about the orphan mentality, but notice this. Some of us, like sheep, have strayed away. Is that what it says? All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We have left God's paths to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. That's why Jesus had to come, because we did it our way. That's called sin. That's what kills relationships, doing it our way. Because that's the way we want to do it. And this whole idea of it carries over the wounds from our past. Many, many of you are in, in families that may have done over-controlling or whatever it was. And, you know, we get wounds from mom and from dad. It wasn't because they were trying in some cases maybe, but they had been wounded themselves. and just passed from one generation to another. And unless the healing of God comes, it keeps going. Time does not heal it in our life. It takes more than time. As we go through our men's study, one of the things we're going to touch on is for men especially how to work through these wounds. We're going to talk much more about that. In fact, if you come to our men's group on Friday morning, we're going to be also talking about how man writes a life mission statement. Less than 5% of the country has one of those. We'll do that together. Plus, you have a great time of being with other friends, so I encourage you to do that. If you can't be in a men's study, get involved in one of the small groups that begin this week. And I forgot to mention... On the back is a study guide each week. You have a study guide that's right there for you of what we're covering in our small groups these next four weeks. So it's there for you. If you can't make a group this week, you can do it in your family, and hopefully it will be helpful. And then finally, when we ignore God's ways and his design, we, we experience a distorted view of God, ourselves, and others that produces unfulfilled longings for love and intimacy that only God can give to us. You see, what happens is that the train wreck caused us to distort our view of God. We don't see God as he really is. We have to get the fog off of our lenses. That's why Jesus came, in order to do that. But along with it goes, we don't understand God, and so we're estranged from him. This carries over into families, and it means we become so self-absorbed, we're not able to nurture those around us. And then this distorted view of God, ourselves, and others leads to unfulfilled longings. Every human on earth, you can bank on this, has deep longings to be loved and valued and have a life of significance and meaning and dignity. Every one, even though they say, I don't care about that stuff. Of course they do. They've just given up on it. All cultures where they have no hope. We don't understand going to these other cultures, folk. They don't think like we do. You think you're raised in America. You have the opportunity to make something out of your life. No, they're not. They've been told they have no opportunity to do anything except what, what is. That's their whole psyche. They've been baptized in their minds in that. And Christ comes to set us free from that. And that's why what Jesus' words here, and by the way, if we don't know that, we look to others to meet what only God can meet. And when others disappoint us, and they will, it's a signal to look to God. And look what Jesus said in John chapter 7. On the last day, the climax of the festival, Jesus stood and shouted to the crowds, anyone who is thirsty may come to me. Anyone who believes in me may come and drink. For the scriptures declare, rivers of living water will flow from his heart. He was speaking of the Holy Spirit. God does an inside job in order to meet our needs. No outside job will ever work. No amount of success, no other person, nothing else can meet the job that only God can do by filling us from the inside out. That's what he came to do. To satisfy the... Everybody here has unfulfilled longings. Every one of us. And we talked about it before. Sometimes that days, it just seems, don't seem to be going right, and God, it's all the rest. That's called destination sickness. See, you weren't created for this world. That's a longing for your future. You were created to live with Christ forever. And that doesn't mean we can't work to improve things. But some days, it's just a reminder, this earth is not designed to bring you ultimate fulfillment. That's something only God can do. And his design then restores us finally. Restores individuals and families when, number one, we invite him back in to lead our own hearts and our home. He made a covenant with us. He said, I will give you my life. Give me yours. Will I renew my covenant? Some say, well, I did that years ago. I know. But, you know, I've, heard, I've had advice over the years. Why not every day renew our covenant with God? 
Why not every day say, Jesus, here's my life. Here's my heart. Here's my home. I did it two weeks ago. I know what's happened. There's been a leak. Okay, do it again today. It's not that he didn't hear it. It's that we forget. And something begins to happen inside of us. Psalm 127 says, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. He's not talking about nuts and bolts and screws and, and, and wood only. He's talking about lives. We can't build the family on our own. We need our God. That's what this series is all about. And have I consciously invited him to take over in my heart and in my family? I've just blessed my family when I do that. And can I say, Jesus, I want to live by your design. I live my own way long enough. Maybe you're a single. You say, God, I'm not even married or I'm a single parent. You can pray, God, I want to live by your design. You're a grandparent. Say, God, I didn't do it as well enough the, the first time with my own kids. You have grandkids. It's never too late to pick up on God's design and begin doing what he asks us to do and let him bring fruit. That's the good news. It's not too late with Jesus. He will continue to produce when we give him the opportunity so we can renew and fresh our family. Then number two. Number two is become intentional and prayerfully design a plan for your future. Do you have one? I mean more than a budget. Most business people have all kinds of business plans, but they don't take the same skills and go home and do a family plan. And bless their families. Men have the capability. They've never been taught how to do it. Men, in that Friday morning deal, we're going to show you how to do one for your family. We're going to show you how to do one for your walk with Jesus. And watch what God does when you have an intentional plan. Good families don't happen any more than a good garden springs up in your backyard one day because you wish there was one there. And then thirdly and finally, how crucial to have to partner and establish a prayer shield for your family's hearts, relationships, and future. I was very fortunate. I had two grandfathers. One died when he was 57. He was an outspoken atheist, my dad's father. My other, fa grandfa excuse me, my other grandfather uh, died when I was nine months old. But before he died, he prayed for the next four generations of his family. They'd all come to Christ. I am a second generation. My kids are third, and our grandkids are the fourth. And in every one of those families, God is working to answer that prayer. It's incredible. He was far from a perfect father or grandfather, but he prayed, and God's been at work. Then when he died, my grandmother, we just called her bio, took over, and she would pray. She said, honey, I can't sleep at night. She says, I love you kids so much it hurts. I just pray all night long for you, and she did. She died at 96, and then my mom took over, and she prayed. As we've gone around the world, and we had kids, you know, these last 40, 50 years. Mom was just there praying and praying, and now God has left that mantle on us. How about your family? Who's going to pick it up and pray for your family? I ask people all the time, how can I pray for you? Well, I don't, you know, it's not that much this week. It's okay. Folks, we don't understand. Every day is a battle in the spiritual realm. Yeah, maybe your house didn't burn down. You didn't lose your job. But you realize there are lives to be influenced daily. And who is praying for the next generation? And who's praying for your kids and the ones they will marry? And who's praying for spiritual protection over your family? And who's praying for wisdom and decisions? And on and on and on. I'm an imperfect father, but if you ask my kids, ask about old dad, I think they'll probably say, at least he prayed for me. They call me, I talk all the time, I, always, I end it with, hey, how can I pray for you? They give me something every time. I'm not perfect, but I've learned a few things. God has designed the family, and he wants to bless. Let's bow for prayer. What has your heart and mind heard this morning? What is God saying to you, to your family? He wants to give you a boost, a great help. You may be a single parent. You may not be married at all. You may be married with kids. You may be a grandparent. But God has you in his radar. So this morning, why not invite Jesus? Take the, take the hand of your, your mate, your husband, your wife, if you're sitting there. And if it feels awkward, then that means you need this series and just pray in your heart say Jesus can you do this I want to invite you to become the head of my heart and my home now folks by praying that you know it means change you know it means the spirit of God is going to point out some things that need to change in your life you have two choices you can do it your way but then the consequences are your own choice or you can say God help me I battle in this area. I struggle and I need you. Secondly, will you take the time, and we'll do some of this together,
to begin designing a plan for your family. There's nothing you're going to plan for that's more important. People have retirement plans, but they have no family plan. And then how about, will you accept the privilege and challenge of being the spiritual shield for your family? Will you pray with your husband or wife? And if one of them doesn't want to, you pray anyhow. God will honor your prayer. Father, we give you our hearts. Our choice is to be your men and women. Our choice is to live by your design for our families. Would you work in us? Thank you for your people. Send your favor grace in a powerful and new way.